Welcome to the public morality. What exactly is presidential power? According to President Donald Trump during a recent press briefing, the authority is total. If in fact authority is total, would that also suggest the legislative and judiciary branches of government are secondary considerations? And what about the public? How would such statements impact public trust? Joining me to discuss these and other questions is Professor Kevin McMahon. Professor McMahon is Professor of Political Science and Director of the Graduate Program in Public Policy at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Professor Kevin McMahon, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. When you think of presidential power as articulated in Article 2 of the Constitution, how powerful is that position? Well, I think it's really one that's been an involving power, right? That when the founders created the institution of the presidency, they were certainly very concerned about the the potential for presidential power. Having just rebelled, successfully rebelled against the king, they didn't want to create an executive branch that would actually, they feared, would be more powerful than a king because unlike the king, a president would have some democratic legitimacy through the vote. So they had great concerns about how powerful a president could be. That's part of the reason why Article One is about the Congress, right? That's significant. They figured the Congress would be the most important of the branches and the presidency would certainly be second. So therefore, Article Two is, is, about, um, is about the presidency. Now, having said that, the language within Article 2 is quite vague, quite ambiguous. And over time, particularly during crises like the ones that we have today, um, presidents have used those vague words to expand their power. Now, when you talk about the vagueness, um, are you including the, some of the implied powers uh, in the presidency? Yeah, but even the, I mean, I'm specifically, uh, you know, referring to the phrases that are used in Article 2, phrases like um, executive power. Um, what does it mean to have executive power? Um, perhaps a better example is commander-in-chief. Is You can think of commander-in-chief as, as playing different roles, and certainly throughout American history, that, that phrase commander-in-chief has been has been uh, used uh, in different ways right now it's used almost as a way to say um the the president has 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 far more authority dealing with foreign policy than uh the president did previously and that this power to declare war that exists in article one under the under the congress has not been used for you know close to um, more than well, close to eighty years, right? Since since uh, nineteen forty one. So, but obviously we've been very involved. The United States has been very involved in in, in foreign conflicts, and that's come from this this phrase, commander in chief. And you, you can also add to your list uh, executive executive privilege, which is sort of like the right to privacy in the Fourth Amendment. It does it's not there, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, executive privilege really comes out of the, you know, the Watergate scandal, the, the Nixon case. Uh, and what the court says is that there is an executive privilege, you know, that the, the, the president has this, this power. Um, but they, in that specific case, they said that uh, the power to prosecute the case dealing with 
the Watergate scandal over uh, superseded the the power of uh, the executive privilege power that that Nixon was articulating. Mm-hmm. So, so with specifically to the president, uh, what about uh, emergency powers created by statute? Um, what powers do the president have in in that in that uh, area? Yeah, so this really d- is dependent on you know specific, uh, uh, oftentimes specific conflicts. Sometimes there'll be a resolution that's that's passed, you know, dealing with let's say the first Gulf War or the du- Gulf of. Um, Gulf of Tonkin resolution in the Vietnam, right? So there's, they tend to be sort of uh, um, blank, I shouldn't say blanket statements, but but uh, statements of support. And then the pres- presidents have used these statements from the Congress to, you know, uh, carry out a, a war effort. That certainly happened in, in Vietnam with Lyndon Johnson in particular. And then uh, during the first Gulf War with George H.W. Bush. Um, today, we're seeing a lot of discussion of, um, you know, the, the National Defense Production Act um, and Donald Trump's, well, oftentimes you're seeing governors saying that he should use this production act as a way to force private entities to, you know, build things like ventilators or test kits or um, and that's, you know, that's one of those areas where a president would have more authority because what, what you have going on there, and this goes back to, as we, we mentioned before we started talking, uh, Justice Jackson's um, breakdown of presidential power in, in the steel seizure case, steel seizure case of 1952. And what, what Jackson says is that you have to look at the presidential power in a variety of ways, that if the Congress and the president are on the same, if they're in agreement, right? If Congress says we think the president should do X and the president says I want to do X, then this is when presidential power is at its highest, right? But if there's a conflict between the two, then that's a much, that's, that really questions the capacity of the president to act by himself. If the, if the Congress is saying we think you should do Y and the president says, no, I'm going to do X, you know, that's where you're going to have serious conflict. And then this this question mark, you know, the, and he, he calls it, uh, there's a zone of twilight where the Congress doesn't act, uh, is sort of silent on the matter, and the president wants to act in that, in that, uh, that silence or w- despite that silence. And so I think that those um, different, fr- that framework is very important for understanding uh, presidential power. Well, t- well, taken together, uh, just what you just articulated uh, uh, w- with uh, the powers by statute, the implied powers, the Constitution, uh, the, the role of Congress, it, it almost stands to reason that in times of crisis, people look to that singular figure in the executive branch. They do. I mean, in this one, this this is particularly interesting, this crisis, because... Donald Trump has said, you know, last, I think last week, last Monday, that he has, as president, he has total authority. But he hasn't really seemingly desired to use that authority, right? Because on the day after, or two days later, he says it's up to the governors to take care of the testing, right? Mm-hmm. So this, this is really... Um, different than previous experiences. Usually you want total authority 
because you think that's best to, you know, oftentimes repel or, or fight a war effort, right? That you want total authority because without that total authority, or I shouldn't say total authority, without as much authority as you're asking for, past presidents have asked for, you think it's going to undermine the ability of the United States to carry out a war effort or to respond to a different type of crisis. But in his case, it's really it's it's unusual because he's he's asserting this authority, but then he's turning around and saying, but it's up to the state governors to actually carry out testing to deal with some of the frontline issues necessary uh, to deal with coronavirus and this current crisis that we have today. Well, when a, when a, when a president in general, Donald, Donald Trump uh, specifically says, uh, claims total authority. I, I'm curious, as a political scientist, what goes through your mind? Do, do you hear just momentary musings of a politician, or is this cause for real con- constitutional concern? Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent question. Um, you know, I, I think oftentimes with tr- it, if Trump had said that and then acted in a way that was in line with those words, that would be cause for concern, right? Because I think that is really a challenge to fundamental aspects of democracy. Um, but again, I think he he says it and then sort of acts in a way that's almost inconsistent with that idea. So therefore, in that case, I'm thinking, you know, this is just him speaking, right? And sort of speaking in a way that's not fully thought out in terms of what the constitutional commands um, speak, speaking of uh, at least words, not necessarily actions taken by the president, what liberties are extended to the executive branch in terms of holding and or suspending sessions of the legislative branch? Yeah, so this is this is a tricky one. I mean, in, in, in some ways, this is sort of, you know, inside um, inside baseball, if you will. Um, it was it was un- it was not uncommon for Congress to, um, you know, to to shut down, right? And 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 this was just part of the idea of of having a um, of of being a member of Congress, right? Part of your job is being in Washington, but part of your job is also going back and dealing with your constituencies, whether that's in the Senate or um, that's in the in the house right uh, so it was it was not uncommon for the the Congress to adjourn right um, and when they were in recess presidents could then app- make various appointments you know so-called recess appointments um, and this meant that these were temporary appointments so there are some like significant figures in the history of the country Probably the one that pops to mind uh, for me is Earl Warren, right? Earl Warren is initially, you know, the great chief justice of the of the Supreme Court, is initially a recess appointment. And then once Congress reconvenes, um, you know, then he has he's confirmed by the, by the Senate for a, a regular appointment. Um, so but more recently, what Congress has done is that they've never gone into recess. Um, they've always had, in a sense, someone there keeping the lights on. So presidents cannot do recess appointments. So Trump is sort of challenging this idea of uh, not going into recess. And he's saying that he's trying to assert his authority that 
if if uh, Congress is essentially in recess, right? That that it could not have a quorum if if mm-hmm. if um, a meeting were called, a session were called, then he should be able to have these recess appointments like previous presidents have. Um, and it's really, I think, uh, it's probably an issue that will go to the courts and there'll be some type of resolution about, you know, whether or not he can do this or not, or what it means for Congress to be in recess or, or you know, uh, not in recess. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Kevin McMahon. Professor McMahon teaches political science and directs the graduate program uh, of public affairs, uh, public policy, excuse me, at Trinity College at uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, and we're discussing presidential power. But I want to digress for just a moment, Professor McMahon, because you're also the author of Nixon's Court, his challenge to judicial liberalism and its political consequences, which won the Supreme Court Historical Society's Irwin Griswold Prize, and that's not a prize that's awarded annually, so it's quite an honor to be recognized in that way, and I'd like for you to talk about that book, if you would, since we're already talking about the Supreme Court. There's your handoff right there. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, I mean, the the take on, the the, the traditional take on Richard Nixon was, you know, he came in, in he's elected in 1968. Obviously, the the country there's a lot of a lot of change being pressured on on the U- U.S. government at the time. Uh, there's the civil rights movement. There's uh, the women's rights movement is beginning. Uh, obviously, there's the war in Vietnam. There's a lot of protests going on, and and part of the, his campaign is that he says he's gonna he's gonna restore law and order in the United States, right? Uh, and people see this as a really a call to change the Supreme Court. Um, and then he has four appointments to the Supreme Court. Um, and the analysis was that that sort of traditional conventional wisdom about Nixon and his, his promise to change the court was it was uh, a failure. Right. Uh, there's a book, another book called uh, uh, The Counter Revolution That Wasn't, meaning that Nixon was going to counter the Warren Court Revolution, right? The, the move to advance civil rights on the court with decisions like Brown versus Board, uh, various uh, decisions dealing with criminal rights, um, like the Miranda decision. He was going to overturn them, right? He was going to counter that res- revolution, uh, and it didn't work. So my argument is that, well, if you look more closely at actually what Nixon was saying, um, he really only focuses on a couple of issues. He focuses on school desegregation and he focuses on the rights of the accused or, or you know, cr- criminal, criminal law issues. But more importantly, the reason why he's targeting the Supreme Court is not really to change Supreme Court doctrine. He's trying to use the anger that was in place in the voting public and and turn those voters, those discontented Democrats, many of them, into Republican voters. And on that score, he succeeds, right? He creates a successful Republican coalition. Would would that be sort of an an extension of of the overarching Southern strategy, in, in a sense? That's right. Yeah, no, certainly the Southern strategy is part of very much part of that, but it, it be, it's beyond just, you know, white Southerners, former Democrats, right, as you know, um, who are discontented with 
the the path Lyndon Johnson has taken the Democratic Party. He wants to to certainly move those voters into the Republican Party, and he successfully does that. But it's it's also in the urban north where you have sort of Archie Bunker types to 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 you know use an example from the past who who you know working class traditional Democrats who feel um, again dissatisfied with the Democratic Party. And he uses language, he uses attacks on the court as a way to bring those voters into, into the Republican Party. Those voters would later be called Reagan Democrats. I, in my book, I call them Nixon Democrats, because Nixon actually is doing that same thing before Reagan ever gets to the national stage. Now, as, as we turn back uh, to uh, presidential power, would it be fair to offer that... Uh, we could we could view presidential power over the centuries almost like an accordion at times. It it's expanded, and I'm, I'm you know I'm I'm thinking uh, most recently uh, post nine eleven, and at other times it it contracts. Um, post Watergate, so we're talking about Nixon being clear examples. How how would you how would you define it? Yeah, I think so, certainly historically that that analogy is spot on, right? That. That presidential power tended to expand during times of crisis, whether it's Lincoln in the Civil War or Woodrow Wilson in World War One. Um, but I think once you start the development of what political scientists like to call the modern presidency, which really begins with Franklin Roosevelt, um, where the the argument is that in order to fix the economy, you can't have state-by-state state initiatives. You know, this is very, very much in line with what's happening today. What Roosevelt does or says is what we need to do is we need to deal, this is a national economic crisis, and to respond to this crisis, we need to act as a single nation. You know, not with New York saying one thing and Massachusetts saying another but we need to we need to centerize power in Washington, and then once it gets to Washington, he wanted power in the presidency, right? So this is the beginning of again the modern presidency, where presidential power um, doesn't expand and contract as much as it did before before Roosevelt. It certainly continues to do that when you have crises. Again, usually these are these they're dealing with war. But um, I think more and more what we're seeing is presidents are, are using their authority all the time, right? So if you, if you think back to, you know, Barack Obama, um, George W. Bush, uh, they're in part because it's so difficult to get things through, through Congress, right? It's, it's so hard to pass legislation. Uh, you see presidents using executive orders, executive power, um, certainly after 9-11, like you say, but even in sort of ordinary times, um, you know, whether it's dealing with the economic crisis of 2008 um, or today dealing with, you know, the COVID scare. Uh, it's, it's, but even before COVID, Donald Trump even when you had a Republican Congress in his first two years, right, both houses of Congress are, are in Republican hands, he's still using executive orders 
more than than President Obama did when he was when he was in the White House for eight years. So it's it's becoming just more routine to rely on the executive branch as opposed to doing the hard work, which is it's very and it's very difficult, right, of getting major pieces of legislation through the U.S. Congress. And, and I know that, um, and you just articulated it how 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 sort of the politics has changed over time since the the, the modern presidency. Um, but I'm also thinking that we haven't touched on another or organic power associated with, associated with the presidency that makes it unique, is that a lot of the presidential power, isn't it derived directly from the people? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is uh, you know, obviously we have sort of a strange assistant, a system for electing presidents, right, given the electoral college. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, it, and, and, you know, I think this is this is the the conflict I would say that's occurring today, um, or certainly since 2000. You have um, several instances, um, well, two specifically, uh, 2000 and and 2016, where uh, the elected president did not win the popular vote, but. Nevertheless, you've seen the expansion of presidential power, right? So even if you compare that, you know, compare that to 1972, for example, with Richard Nixon, he wins 49 states, right? Um, uh, over 60% of the vote. Ronald Reagan, a uh, very similar result, for also 49 states in, in uh, 1984. Back to uh, Lyndon Johnson in 1964, Again, more than sixty percent of the vote. So, so at those times, like th- think of think of LBJ, right? He wins sixty percent of the votes, landslide election, overwhelming majorities in Congress. He passes, you know, a phenomenal amount of legislation, right? He doesn't use the executive branch. Seemingly at that point, he he could have been he would have had more legitimacy to use the executive branch. He doesn't do that. He goes through and gets, you know, passes the, some of the great pieces of legislation in the history of the country um, in terms of their significance. Um, today, you get less legitimacy with regard to that electoral result, but more use of, of president, presidential power. And I think this is where people get concerned, right? Is this really challenging some of the fundamental aspects of American democracy if the majority of the people are saying we want you know, Hillary Clinton, but Donald Trump gets in and he's using powers without working with the U.S. No, when you were giving that last answer, I was thinking of another example. I was thinking um, Roosevelt lost, what, four states in 1936 to Alf Landon? Um, uh, just two. two. Huh? He just lost two. He lost two Maybe to Alf Landon. Yeah. And, yeah. But when it came to the court packing, the people weren't, weren't with him on that, and that sort of emboldened Congress to push back on his court packing idea, and he was incredibly popular at the time. That's true. That's a that's a that's a good comparison to, to uh, you know how how you've been how sometimes presidents have gone a little too far out on a limb. Now, in that case, I, I would argue that it also had to do with what was going on internationally, right? So democracies were falling. You had the rise of Hitler. You had the rise of Mussolini. Obviously, Stalin is in power in in the Soviet Union. Um, So there was concern that 
you know, was was dictatorship a possibility in the United States as well? And when you had a popular politician like Roosevelt, he had control over the Congress and the fear was now he was going to take control over the courts as well. And this once he had all this power, you know, this was this was going to be problematic for the nation. Um, so I, I do think the international setting of the mid 30s, that was 1937, you know, is part of the reason why the core packing plan is viewed in so, with such hostility. And, and just to add on to that, I think if, you know, what ultimately happens in 1937 is the court uh, switches, right? It, it, it had rejected, it had declared the, the so-called first New Deal unconstitutional. It changes its mind on the so-called second New Deal and says it is constitutional. So therefore, the, the necessity of the court picking plan isn't, isn't, isn't really there. And because of that, the core packing plan fails. If the court had you know, stayed with its line of argument that, that Roosevelt's policies were unconstitutional, I think there would have been a core packing plan. So, you know, the court was was adapted sort of changing course and, and probably uh, saving itself in terms of the size of the court. Now, I wanna, I wanna touch on another piece of uh, presidential power that's sort of been bantered around. It's uh... Given what we carry are in a crisis, some are, some are concerned that President Trump can summarily cancel the general election. How would you respond to them? Yeah, I think that's that's uh, that's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the date of the new presidential term is in the Constitution, January twentieth, right? Um, when the president takes the oath of office, uh, the elect the date of the election has been is by statute, but that statute has been in place for, I think, since 1845. Um, so I just don't think that is a serious concern. Um, now, what may happen is you may, you know, as you know, states have control over their electoral systems, right? So you may have individual states sort of saying, oh, we can't have an election you know, because of the COVID crisis, or we're not going to do mail-in voting. So then it raises these questions about how do you treat states that say they can't have an election? And I think it goes to it goes to the Supreme Court, you know, just like the decision in 2000 with Bush versus Gore. Um, ultimately, that's decided in the courts. Now, we don't want that. Certainly, the, the the idea of democracy should be that everyone gets to vote and and decide on who's the next person in the in the White House, or if Donald Trump continues. Um, but I think that's really more likely where there will be a controversy if, I, if states somehow resist. I, I just I just had a thought. Given that the presidential term expires on at twelve o'clock on January on January twentieth. If the president were successful in canceling the election, wouldn't that, on order of secession, make Nancy Pelosi president of the United States? Yeah, that's, I mean, these are, I mean, you could say, <laughs> I mean, um, you know, there, I guess there's various scenarios. She's third in line. And if, yeah, and, if she, and, 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 yeah. and there's a clear date for the expiration of the president and vice president, right. she's third in line. That would make her president. That's I don't true. think they'd do it just on those grounds alone. <laughs> well, in that case, if, if it's going to be Pelosi, I think you, you would know that 
since Donald Trump hasn't spoken to her in five or six months, that he won't cancel the election or won't try to. Right? <laughs> if he thinks she's going to be president, uh, he's going to he'll do something else. <laughs> um, I, I want to, with the time we have left, I, I want to turn our attention to, to the role of federalism. Um, could you provide our listeners with the Reader's Digest definition of federalism and how it works and how it and how does it work, actually, to sort of mute some of this presidential power we've been discussing? Right. Yeah. So this is another idea from the founders, right, that the 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 sense is that you don't want power concentrated in the national government and then once in the national government concentrated in the in the presidency right so what what we have in the united states is really not a government right we have many governments we have the federal government we have state governments we have county governments we have cities and towns we have school boards and that's the idea of federalism right that you that you disperse power because when power is dispersed the likelihood that one person can control, you know, the nation is much less, right? And you see, you know, this current crisis, sometimes teaching federalism is pretty difficult because we tend to focus just at the Congress, just at the, the federal level, just at the president. But this is a perfect example. You see, you know, Governor Cuomo's got a lot of attention in New York for how he's run the state. This is the, the epicenter of where this crisis is occurring, specifically in New York City, right? And he, and he's sort of been able to make his case for why states should act independently in some areas, but in other areas, they need quite a bit of federal help, right? Uh, and, and this is how it's supposed to be, that the, the federal government helps when it can, particularly dealing with economic issues or and particularly dealing with international issues. Um, but when it comes to sort of dealing with uh, specific concerns to a state and how to, to solve a problem that's specific to the state or an aspect of the state, then it should be done at the state level or at the local level, you know, whether it's Mayor de Blasio in New York City. Um, finally, give, give, given our earlier discussion um, that the people naturally look, look to the president first, um, wouldn't misstatements, especially those emanating from the president, still possess an air of credibility and thereby adding public confusion in, in, in moments of crisis in particular? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, what's particularly striking about this crisis is that typically when, when the president responds to a crisis, there's something called the rally around the flag effect meaning his, his, and so far always been a, a man, obviously, um, his approval ratings go up, right? So, you know, the best example of this is 9-11. Is, uh, uh, before 9-11, George W. Bush's poll numbers were like in the 40s, low 40s. Uh, and then after 9-11, they went up into the, ever, the highest ever recorded in the low to mid-90s, right? So that's just the nation sort of coming around and saying, you know, we're going to support this, this, you know, the, the single individual who's been elected by the entire country. In this case, that's not happening. There was some bit of a bump of support for Trump initially, but not much. Um, and it certainly has come back down. So the question becomes, 
well, why is that happening? Is it because of how he's responding as an individual to the crisis? And then he's holding these press conferences that are, um, you know, um, that are not giving sort of the, the, the clear facts that it's, you know, sort of um, so at, uh, articulating what he's done right as opposed to what he may have done incorrectly? Or is it that the country has changed so much that we are so polarized that even in times of crisis, there's not going to be a, a rallying around the flag uh, as it has, has occurred in the past uh, during times of crisis? So I think those are, you know, that's really a question. Is it about him as an individual and his own leadership and his response to this crisis, which, you know, many people have said uh, have been quite critical of? Or is it, uh, uh, you know, about the, the nation as a, as a polarized uh, group of individuals? And my guess is probably both, right? It's certainly the polarization certainly is there. But it's also that Trump, if you, you know, compare, for example, Trump to Cuomo, in terms of watching those press conferences, it's a much different, uh, it's a much different uh, uh, layout of facts. Uh, There's sort of a, Cuomo is much calmer. He's, he's trying to state facts. And then when he's, he has his own personal opinion, he says, this is my own personal opinion. He's not being hostile to the, to the press. Uh, and in with regard to Trump, it's it's just a different type of a different type of press conference. Uh, finally, when when you look at the, the evolution of presidential power, um, is it um, in your view that that we're living with the tension between Madison's vision and Hamilton's vision? To some extent, sure. Yeah, I mean those. You know, even though it's been many years since, obviously they. Um, they were alive, but they were so fundamental to the construction of the Constitution, um, and they did have different takes on presidential power. Hamilton being much, much more um, accepting of inherent power um, than than Madison. So, you know, it's you know I, I think it's true that in many cases when we deal with questions about institutional power or institutional structure uh it's necessary to go back and look at what the founders were doing what they were saying the types of conflicts that they um that that they articulated and and certainly dealing with presidential power you have to go back and read um what hamilton and madison said i i get the feeling though that 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 hamilton's uh, uh commitment to inherent power uh, ends begins with George Washington and ends right before it gets to Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. I mean, <laughs> Hamilton was uh, certainly in alliance with uh, with uh, President Washington, and then once you have the election of eighteen hundred, uh, things things uh, take a change. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Professor Kevin McMahon. Trinity College, I want to thank you for joining me today, sir, on The Public Morality. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed it very much. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. 
And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRowley at their studios. The Paul McRowley is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the Paul McRowley, I'm Byron Williams. Thank <laughs> you.